may be seated. There's a movie that is uh, that was out earlier in the year uh, that that's kind of seems to be very present online right now for those of you who are streaming. It's a movie called Just Mercy. Um, Aaron and I went and saw it back in the earlier part of the year when it first came out. It's a good movie. But what I really thought was neat about it, even, even better than the story, uh, which is a very moving story, uh, because I like words. I like the way words are used. I, I thought it was a very creative title to it. Just Mercy. I mean, you could, on first sight, see that and, and think that the idea is just mercy in that I, I just want mercy or I only want mercy in that sense. But then upon further reflection, you consider, no, wait, it's not just saying just mercy as in only mercy. It's saying just mercy as in a, a mercy that is just justice bound up in mercy, intertwined with one another. And as I thought about that, I thought, wow, what a, what a reality about our God, that he is the kind of God who is perfectly just in every way and yet so gloriously merciful to us. He's the God who calls us to, to do that which is good, that which is required of us. What does Micah tell us? But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. That's the kind of God we have. He is, he is justice and mercy all intertwined one with another. And I think we see that very well in today's sermon text, which is a, a longer text. It's Genesis 6, verse 9 through Genesis 7, verse 24. It's a a familiar passage to most of us, the story of the flood. Before we look to it, let's ask God to bless our time in his word. Our Heavenly Father, we turn to you now, realizing that this is a big text, but even more importantly, you are a big God. And so we pray that that. In looking to this text, in seeing what you have to say to us in your word, that we might see you. And seeing you, beholding your glory, might transform us, might change us, might conform us to the very likeness of Christ Jesus that we might shine with his glory now and forevermore. We ask it in his name. Amen. Our sermon text again, Genesis 6, verse 9 through chapter 7, verse 24. Here now as I read, this is the inspired word of God. These are the generations of Noah, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. 
And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all the flesh, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you and keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. 
those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, that was a long passage. A passage about a familiar figure in Noah. If we, we look to Noah, we see at the beginning of this passage, starting right there in verse 9, that Noah was peculiar in his time. He was different than the other people in a certain sense. Now, there, there was a sense in which all of us are sinful, for sure. And surely, Noah was sinful as well. We will see that later in his life. But there also is a sense in which it can be said of Noah, in a way that it could be said of no one else, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, who walked with God. Now remember, righteousness is not perfection in this case. It, it's a righteousness that responds to the mercy and, and grace and favor of God. It's a love that loves because it has first been loved. It is a righteousness that comes by faith. This is the first time we see this word righteousness pop up in the scriptures. It'll show up again in talking about Abraham here before too long. And we know that Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him or counted to him as righteousness. And I think we can safely assume that indeed this was the case here too. When it says that Noah was a righteous man, what it's saying is that he believed in God. He trusted in God, and therefore righteousness was credited to him. We can say that because we look to the New Testament. We see Hebrews 11, where it talks about all those who have come in faith, and it says in verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world, 
and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see? His, his actions that he takes are, are a response to God's love, a response to God's kindness toward him. They are the outworking of a faith that has already made him righteous in the eyes of God. What does it look like to live out a faith in such a way, in such a God, a God of justice and yet a God of mercy? Well, remember, what precisely is the responsibility of man as we're looking here in these early chapters of Genesis? Man was created specifically to alone bear the image of God, to be fruitful and multiply and so fill the earth and subdue it, and in so doing, fill the earth with God's glory. And yet we look here in verse 11, and we see that it is not God's glory that has filled the earth. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Things are broken. They're very broken very clearly. And we need to understand that how God reacts to this is, is not quite the same as how I might react to it. Right? If I had created a universe that was supposed to exist solely for the sake of bringing me glory, and instead of being filled with my glory, it was filled with violence, I'd be mad. And I'd probably fly off the handle and just have a temper tantrum about it. That's how I would react, because I'm sinful. But God is not sinful. So when we see him react, we know that this is not just some temper tantrum he's having. He's not like the mythological gods of Greece and Rome, right, who, who act capriciously, who, who get their feelings hurt, and so they strike somebody with a lightning bolt. Right? That's not the way God acts. He works in a way that is totally just, totally righteous all the time. What we see from him here is, is a display of his unswerving commitment to holiness and a steadied, reasoned response to man's corruption of his good creation. So in verse 12, we see that God saw, behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And in verse 13, he says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for all the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Sounds kind of harsh, God. But what we don't see in the English that perhaps the Hebrew readers would better understand. In the original Hebrew in which this is written, that word for destroy is actually the same word that we've already seen three times in verses 11 and 12. When we read that the earth was corrupt and it was corrupt again, and that all flesh had corrupted their ways, it is the same word we see pop up here again now in verse 13, where God says, I will destroy them. You see, what has happened is, is the text is telling us that, 
Man has fouled up. He has messed up. He has, he has ruined the creation. And so God is saying, in essence, if man would ruin the creation, then so be it. I'll just bring it about. Why, why wait for this to happen over time? I'll just bring it about in all, in one fell swoop. Man, if you would have it be ruined, then I will give you your way. It is ruined completely. This is the message of the Bible, isn't it? That God does this. We see in Romans 1, right? Sometimes when we just dwell in our sin and go back to our sin time and time and time again, God, God relents and waits, but then ultimately he says, okay, if you would rather have that than have me, then have at it, and I will th- leave you to your sin. That's the way God acts at times. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. You see, what is best for us and what God tells us is best for us, what he knows and what he communicates to us is best for us, is that we walk with him. He has, he has set up rules and boundaries and borders so that we might walk faithfully with him and not wander off in other directions. He's not done this to steal our joy or to steal our happiness, to keep us from having something good, but rather to keep us from wandering away. But when we act stubbornly, steadfastly, refusing to adhere to his direction and instead chasing after our sin as we all do at times. We really have no logical complaint at that point, whatever God sends our way, right? Whatever judgment he sends our way at that point, we have earned it. We deserve it. And that's, that's why on, on one level we don't like the idea of judgment, right? We don't, we don't like the idea of hell, for instance. Right? We think that, that's terrible, but it's what we've earned. And on the other hand, we do demand justice, don't we? We, we demand justice. We want for things to be made right, especially if something bad happens to us. Then we really demand justice, right? Because somebody has to pay. There have to be consequences. We want to know that someone will be held accountable if something bad happens to us. Well, even through our sinfulness and brokenness, we have this echoing deep inside of us for justice. We know that it's right. We know that it's good. Even if sometimes we, we have a very inflated idea of how, how good we are and as such how we don't deserve to be judged. But see, the scope of God's just judgment is full. It's complete. It, it, it looks at all things. And we're all found wanting. And we see the scope of God's judgment and how how broad it is here in, in chapter 7, verses 11 through 24. Look, look at what it says, if you have your, your text out still. In verse 11, it talks about how 
on that day in the 600th year of Noah's life, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and, and we see in verse 21 the result. All flesh died that moved on the earth. All swarming creatures, all mankind. Verse 22, everything on dry land with, in whose nostrils was the breath of life. Verse 23, he blotted out every living thing. Right? All, 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 every, every. Only Noah was left, we are told, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed for, for 150 days, five months of the waters prevailing. They prevailed so mightily, we're told, that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Now, now I don't know exactly how high the mountains were then. Obviously, you know, the, the way the earth's crust moves, it pushes mountains up, and I don't know at that time how high they were, if they're the same height or not. You see, but, but the idea here isn't so that we can kind of take a measurement uh, as, as, you know, an engineer might want to here with, you know, well, what would be the volume of water here that took this, you know, and that's not what it's trying to tell us this for. What's, what's being communicated to us here is two things, I think. First of all, that this was a massive act of uncreation, right? God had created all things in the beginning, and he's, he's undoing that. I remember when I was a little kid, my dad had a, uh, had a movie projector, you know, back in the days before we had video cameras, right? It was a little eight millimeter vi movie projector, you know, and, and, and he had a camera and he'd shoot just home movies of us. And, and I remember my very favorite one. This is what I always thought was the funnest thing. We probably only watched it a handful of times, but, but it sticks with me even to this day. I was maybe four or five years old and we had raked leaves into a big pile. And and I was jumping into the pile, and my dad was just taking home movies of me jumping into the pile. But I remember when he showed me the movies, he said, hey, Pete, watch this. And he showed me jump into the pile. And then all of a sudden, it went blank for a second and then came back on. And I came flying backwards out of the pile. He had put it on reverse, right? And so it did everything backwards. And I thought that was the most amazing thing ever. I was obviously very easily amused. But that's what God is doing here, right? He's, he's flipped it over to reverse. The God who has created all things is now uncreating. Remember, in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He said... You know, let there be light, light and darkness were separated. And then what did he do? He separated the waters above and below. And God is saying, those waters now that I had separated before, I'm letting them whoop back together. And it's washing everything clean. Wherever sin had tainted the earth, there the washing waters of the flood swept through. It was an act of uncreation. The idea was he was going to bring about a new beginning. He was going to start over. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. You'll remember last week. It grieved him to his heart. 
And so he had to do something. Second thing that God was doing in this was, was he's showing us in his word that there is nowhere to hide from the judgment of God. You can't go up on top of a mountain to hide from the judgment of God. You can't run to somewhere else to hide from his judgment. He had, he had shown all of flesh that there was nowhere to flee other than one place. And that was the place that he had provided. The place that he had provided graciously and mercifully for the very few with whom he was in covenant relationship. Right, verse 18 says, those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded them and the Lord shut him in. Right, that's, that's the only way to escape judgment for us as well. Right, that's the picture that's being shown here. You can only escape judgment through Christ Jesus. There's no other way. There's no, no place we can run to hide from God's judgment. But he has graciously provided a means of salvation for those who are in covenant with him. It is Jesus. Acts tells us Jesus the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, for there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among which men must be saved. You see, because it's at the cross where justice and mercy came together perfectly. right? Because, because God, who is perfectly holy, cannot just neglect the fact that we have sinned. He can't just say, Ah, no big deal. Because it is a big deal. Because he is perfectly holy. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly righteous. And so an accounting must be made for our sins. And yet on the cross, it is Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who takes our punishment upon himself instead of leaving us to take it on our own so that we see the mercy of God perfectly poured out as well. Perfect justice, perfect mercy. The flood of judgment pours out not over us, but upon Christ, who is carrying us through the flood. What a beautiful picture of mercy and justice together. We see that mercy here in the text. First of all, just in what we said before, Randy, thank you so much for sharing this idea that God in the times of the judgment waited. How merciful of him to, to wait. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the waters. God could have acted immediately in judgment. But he waited. People had time to repent. Time to realize their sin, time to, to turn from their sinful ways and to trust in God for forgiveness. And whatever judgment we receive, let us know that we deserve it. But if you are not in Christ Jesus, know that that judgment is coming now. The floodwaters are coming. God will not relent forever. Right? We, saw, we saw 
in our unison scripture reading that it won't be a literal flood. It'll actually be fire that comes. The fires of judgment. You can be protected from those fires if you find yourself in Christ Jesus. So, so the question for you is, while he relents, will you repent? Will you repent? Will you turn from your futile and foolish ways and trust in Christ Jesus? That's, that's the only question that has any meaning, it has any importance. Turn to him today. Because repentance is needed. Second thing that's important here in this is the idea of covenant. In verse 18 of chapter 6, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. A covenant is an unbreakable promise that binds people together, not just some general promise for for everyone, but a particular promise for a particular person or people. And, And God is saying in this covenant, you are mine and I am yours. And we are are bound inextricably together so that that your well-being becomes my concern and my glory becomes yours. Now Noah had to trust in the Lord's covenant promise. Noah had to, he had to trust in God's promises and put that trust into action. He had to actually build the ark, right? He had to take those steps. He had to live out his faith in that way, but at the end of the day, it is the Lord who has instituted this promise, who has created and established this covenant with him. Noah's Noah's faith needed to be put into action, but that faith earned him nothing. It was God who established and provided the relationship, and in Christ Jesus, he provides a new relationship with us as well. He provides that relationship, adopting us as sons and heirs, uh, uh, betrothing us to be the bride of Christ. And just like with Christ Jesus, God not only provided a relationship, but he provided a way of escape through the waters of judgment. Make yourself an ark, he says to Noah in 6.14. This idea of an ark, we, we say this term all the time, right? We talk about Noah's ark and we know what we're thinking of, but it's really a word that we don't use anywhere else, do we? In fact, the Bible doesn't use it very often either, other than referring to Noah's ark. The one other place we'll find it is actually in Exodus 2. In Exodus 2, when baby Moses was placed in the river, we see that she could hide him no longer. She took, him in a, uh, took for him a basket made with bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it placed it among the reeds in the riverbank. When it talks about how she put Moses in a basket, the word there is actually the same word that we see when speaking of Noah's ark. It's actually the same word. It's actually, if we were to look at what this word means, it's actually an Egyptian term, interestingly. We, we think of pictures from our flannel graphs and our cartoons that we had in Sunday school class, right? Or, or perhaps some of us have been to, to the Ark Encounter uh, down in uh, Kentucky, Cincinnati area in Kentucky, and, and, and have, have seen this big boat. Realistically, it, apparently from all the studies I did looking at this, it, it really probably wasn't shaped quite like that. It was 
probably more just like a box, right? Just a, just a cube, you know, not, not squared, obviously, rectangular. The, the comparison that almost all of the commentators made, actually, they said it was really kind of like a coffin. You know, because, because the idea wasn't to have a boat that was very hydrodynamic that, that you know, you could throw up the sails and you could, you know, or have a motor and it was going to slice through the water. No, it was just supposed to float. It was just going to sit there until God brought it to rest, right? So it didn't need to have, you know, all the hydrodynamics of a, a keel and all this. It just had to float. And so, so it was like this giant coffin. The irony of it, of course, is that, you know, when you see a coffin, the person inside the coffin is dead and everybody else is alive. In this case, the only people alive were the ones in the giant coffin. Made of gopher wood. We don't know what that is exactly. Perhaps cypress wood, some suggest. We don't know, but it was giant. It was massive. It was, it was as long as a football field and half over, perhaps about 500 feet. Giant. Just think of all the work that went into this. It took nearly 100 years to build how much faith it must have taken for Noah to trust in the Lord throughout all of this. And yet, verse 22 tells us Noah did this. He did all the God commanded him. That's his response to the covenant that God has provided. Not to question God, not to doubt God, not to, not to even do, do the things he said in order to earn his favor, but to responds to his covenant faithfulness by trusting in him. All he had was the promise of God and the grace of God. And I want to ask you this today. If you're left with nothing but the grace of God and the word of God, is that enough? Is that enough, knowing you have the grace of God and the promise of God? Is that enough for you? Noah shows us that it should be. He demonstrates that it should be. He, he responds to the Lord's grace and faithfulness, and he does just as the Lord says. And so God brings about this complete uncreation, recreation that he's working. He tells Noah to go into the ark. He shuts him in. He protects him there. I thought that was... The wording there was interesting that he shut him in. The Lord did that. And we see that he is going to maintain the seed of the woman through Noah and his family. He's going to bring about this new creation that will have some of the old creation and it will, it will still be the constant that God had promised before. And in his righteous Justice, there is also merciful grace. For there always has been. God's righteous judgment of the first sin came intertwined with grace even, right? There was the, the painful labor and the eviction from the garden, but it came with a promise. It came with a promise and a provision of clothing and the seed of the woman. And it came with the protection that he would provide, protecting the way to the tree of life, and so it was in the flood. 
There's a judgment on mankind through mankind on creation itself. But in this act of decreation, there is not only a promise, but ultimately a provision of that new creation. And it will be the same way on the final day when God's act of judgment will also be an act of purification. The fires will dissolve all things that are melted away. And like the fires of a refinery, nothing will be left except that which is pure. And since the sinful world before us is passing away, and since we who are in Christ will dwell forever with the Lord in this world of righteousness and peace, as we read before in 2 Peter, what sort of people ought you to be in terms of living lives of holiness and godliness? Well, it's quite simple. Love God and love your neighbor, right? That's, that's simply what we ought to do. Not just love as in a feeling, but, but love as in action. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we have to know his commandments if we're going to keep his commandments. So, so love his word. Dig into his word. Study his word. Be motivated by his love for you to love him and to love others. We need to love our neighbor as ourself. Again, actively, not just as a feeling, being a a peacemaker, and so being called the sons of God, bearing one another's burdens, rejoicing with one another when we rejoice in mourning and weeping with one another when we weep, not explaining to others why they ought not be weeping because it's really not a big deal. No, coming alongside and sharing burdens with one another. And so loving one another. We should do this because we just like Noah in Christ Jesus have a promise and provision and protection of God for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And know this, brothers and sisters in Christ, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work to the glory of God. Therefore, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you realizing our sinfulness, realizing that, that were you to act justly and purely justly, then we would receive no good thing. We would stand condemned before you, and rightly so. And yet you are not only just, you are also merciful, showing us your grace 
in Christ Jesus so that it is a just mercy that we receive. Lord, we thank you. We stand in wonder at this. We ask, can it be so? And yet it is. So we rejoice. We honor you. We praise you now. And we ask that you would make us more like Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Rise with me now as we sing hymn number 431, And Can It Be?